welcome to Moose Cult. My name is Neve McRae, and in today's session, I'm speaking with Marie Moran, Assistant Professor in Equality Studies and Director of University College Dublin's Equality Studies Centre. Marie is the author of Identity and Capitalism, published by SAGE in 2015, and of Rethinking Elites in Populist Times, which is forthcoming from Verso. She's also working on another monograph for Polity called Inequality in the 21st Century. Marie is a Fulbright Scholar and has recently returned from a period of study at, U- at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she was developing a new framework for conceptualizing equality and inequality, and a political history of the concept of elites. In today's session, we focused on Marie's highly original historicization and conceptualization of identity, a concept that continues to cause controversy in left academia and beyond. We talked about her use of, and contribution to, the cultural materialist method as originally developed by Raymond Williams, and what it means to view identity as a contemporary keyword. We then talked through five key points of controversy within contemporary debates on identity politics, namely essentialism, recognition versus redistribution, the place of solidarity, call-out culture, and the meaning and limitations of the concept of intersectionality. Finally, we briefly discussed Marie's current work, which applies the keyword method to the knotty concept of elites. Okay, hi Marie, and welcome to Mooscult. Um, you're really welcome, and I'm delighted that you agreed to, to participate. Um, both Rosie and I, when we started this podcast, were very keen to get you on, because we were both familiar with your, with your research, and... Um, uh, we just felt that it was just so original and timely and just and, and, and more importantly made a really useful intervention kind of analytically and politically. So um, I suppose you're, what we're going to chat about today is your theorization of the concept of identity and relate to that identity politics and you provide a very novel historicization of the term identity. Um, but as I said, as I was implying there, you also offer a means through which we can start to navigate that kind of, the kind of minefield surrounding so-called identity politics and its uses and abuses on both left and right. And I was really struck in one of your papers where you used the term the radical confusion to describe contemporary divisive debates on identity politics, both within academia and, and within activism and, and popular culture more broadly. Um, so I thought that captures the scene really well. So I was really hoping just to delve into that a bit deeper today. Um, so Great. maybe just to just to to get going, um, we should probably start with how you conceive of the term identity itself, and in particular, what your research has revealed about its emergence and consolidation as an idea in Western capitalist society since the 1950s. As you've pointed out, we now live in what you call identity-saturated times, but this, you suggest, was not always the case. And at the core of your work on this theme is the claim that the idea of identity as we now use it is in fact novel and only emerged in the 1950s, contrary to what is assumed in a whole raft of scholarship. So this is quite a startling claim, um, and I'd love to spend some time unpacking it. So... How do we know that identity, as it is currently used, is a relatively novel concept? And how did you discover this? Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for the really nice and warm and generous introduction, Neve. And uh, I'm grateful to you and Rosie for inviting me onto this podcast. I think it's a really interesting concept and I'm delighted to be part of it. So just to say that to start off. Um, And thank you for your interest in my work, which has been going on a few years now. And um, as you know, I've been kind of writing on these issues 
to do with identity since about 2015. And actually, when I began the research, identity wasn't quite the hot topic it is now. So it's sort of come back around again and is kind of coming in for, you know, renewed interest in the in the 2020s. So um, I guess just starting with your with your with your first question. Yeah, when I began my research on identity, which was quite a number of years ago, probably around, you know, kind of 2007, I think, I was concerned with what seemed to be what looked like a new salience of identity in the late 20th century. And not only was identity the key concept of the humanities and social sciences, I thought that many people were making really apocal claims about its new importance in political and social life. Mm. So people might be familiar with writers like Nancy Fraser, who in the post-socialist condition claimed that group identity has supplanted class interest as the chief medium of political mobilization. And a famous cultural theorist, Paul Gilroy, claimed that we now live in a world where identity matters. It matters both as a concept and as a contested fact of contemporary political life. And, and I wanted to know why this was the case. I asked why had identity come to matter so much in the late 20th century and into the 21st? And of course, this question, of course, assumes that identity always mattered to some extent mm. and that people have always had identities, but that for some reason have come, to, have come to focus on them or be more concerned by them in recent decades. And, you know, my, what I found was that this assumption is held not only by academics and scholars of identity, but by most people. Mm. Uh, and as I grappled with this puzzle, I happened across what, what you say is a startling discovery, what was certainly a startling discovery for me. Mm-hmm. And this was that prior to the middle of the last century, it wasn't that people talked or wrote about their identities less, but that they simply didn't talk or write about their identities at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I carried out a pretty extensive trawl of books and articles and magazines and journals and political manifestos and basically anything I could get my hands on from the time that was now regarded as somehow having to to do with identity. And what this revealed was that there was no mention of identity at all in any of these texts. Um, Basically, until the 50s or 60s, there was no discussion of, say, sexual identity, ethnic identity, political identity, national identity, consumer identity, corporate identity, brand identity, identity crisis losing or finding one's identity, no discussion at all of identity in any of the ways that are so familiar to us today and which in our ordinary and political discussions, we'd find it really hard to do without. Mm. And um, you, you mentioned just there that you started this research back in 2007. Mm. So that was prior to, I mean, I know obviously some books were digitized then and obviously there was going to be political tracks and everything on the internet, but it was must have been quite a laborious job. Like you must have been going back through indexes and everything. Do you know what I mean? Trying to find, has this concept been named in any of these texts prior to the 1950s and 1960s? Whereas now it probably would be probably a bit more easy, a bit easier to do that research. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Because Absolutely. of the, the digitization of all these texts. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's quite true. Although Google, Google books has digitized texts, um, um, for, you know, for about the last 10 or 15 years, but I was going through the the first clue for, for me in many instances, like people would say, oh, you know, Virginia Woolf, an early scholar of uh, f- feminist identity or W.E. Du Bois, who, mm, you mm. know, in the souls of black people wrote about African-American identity. And I'd look, I'd look through the books and I'd yeah, scour yeah. them for the use of the word identity. And it just simply wasn't there. It, w- it never appeared in any of them. 
And were you um, surprised, surprised by that discovery? Yeah, I was. And um, I was surprised because the term did turn up occasionally, but it was in a really, really incidental sense to refer to the exact sameness of two entities as in the phrase, an identity of interests, which is more or less how we use the adjective identical um, yeah, now yeah, today. Yeah. And um, the, other, the, other con- the other kind of type of text in which the word identity explicitly turned up was in text in metaphysical philosophy um, in puzzles over the persistence or sameness of an entity, which is wh- whether human or inanimate, you know, whether this table is the same table today as it will be tomorrow mm. uh, over time. And mm. philosophers referred to this as numerical identity, which means oneness but apart from that there really was no use of the word identity and certainly not in the sense in which we know and use it today so um but you don't seem to be or are you suggesting that people so the concept wasn't word sorry the concept wasn't used the word wasn't used but you don't seem to be suggesting that people did not have a sense of self or grouphood prior to the 1950s yeah is that that right that's right, and, that, and like that's a that's a really good question. I'm I'm not suggesting that people didn't have a sense of selfhood or, or grouphood prior to this. Just that they didn't discuss, frame, or understand these experiences in terms of the idiom of identity. And the way I develop it, and the way I've kind of worked through this puzzle, is I think something pretty important happened with the emergence, with the explicit emergence of the idea of identity precisely as a way to frame these experiences of being a particular type of person or a member of a particular group. Mm. So I I don't think that what is at stake is simply the popularization of the concept, Mm. but rather the evolution of a very particular way of thinking about these issues. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. And so how does that claim, how does your discovery or your argument differ from what is commonly assumed by historians of the idea of, of identity? Yeah. So, well, what is standardly assumed is that people have always had identities, as we now understand that that phrase and concept. Mm. And what I'm claiming is that people only came to understand themselves as having identities relatively recently. So this this is a complicated point. Mm. It's worth sort of putting it up front, but I think it, it probably requires a bit more unpacking to overcome some of the resistance that people have to this type of claim because people feel, no, no, I have an identity and I, I've always had an identity and they're resistant to the idea that this very way of thinking about themselves could actually be historically quite recent. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, let's unpack it then. Um, so from what I understand, you make use of the work of the Welsh Marxist writer, critic and cultural theorist Raymond Williams and his cultural materialist paradigm in order to develop this argument and to, I suppose, to grapple with that kind of uh, complicated claim that you've just made there. Um, so, um, uh, could you maybe just tell us a bit more about Raymond Williams and his influence on your approach? What is cultural materialism and, and why do you feel it's significant? Okay, so, well, Raymond Williams um, was kind of writing in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s until he, he died relatively prematurely in the late 80s. Um, uh, prior, really, he did it was writing prior to the emergence of what we might call postmodern ideas, but mm. very much kind of associated with early British cultural studies. Mm. And he offered he offered a distinctive approach that combined Marxist theory with cultural studies, and this is what he called cultural materialism. And cultural materialism, it's a slightly awkward phrase, but it basically provides a framework for thinking about the relationship of meaning change to social change. Mm. And it it suggests that this relationship is two-way. 
So for Williams, what this meant was that we must analyze ideas, values, language, and cultural forms in the social conditions of their production and circulation. So in one way, that's so far so Marxist, and mm. people might recognize that approach. But And this was the cultural studies bit. If you like, he also argued that we must recognize that powerful ideas can shape social conditions and relations too. And Williams, I thought he had a great way with words. He said, ideas do not occupy merely the tops of our minds, but they are built into our living. Yeah. And for Williams, language is constitutive and it has causal power, it can do things because it is part of the real world rather than distinct from it. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah and I, I, I found this approach really valuable because it, it goes beyond sort of orthodox or sort of old-fashioned varieties of materialism or Marxism, which put ideas and language in a so-called superstructural space determined in the first instance by the supposed real material activity happening elsewhere, typically mm. the economy. Mm. But it also is distinguished from later discourse or postmodern theories, which I think are hopelessly idealist in that they see the world as entirely constructed by language. Yeah. So, um, so that's sort of the cultural materialist paradigm. But within that, I suppose, Williams is best known for his book Keywords. And it was Keywords that was sort of the really kind of breakthrough text for me in terms of providing me with really key insights. Mm. And the central insight of Keywords is that the problems of meanings of a word are intimately tied up with the problems of its use. Yeah. And that mightn't sound like much, but it's massively helpful as it shows that what we sometimes think of as problems of meaning can actually provide insight into the social and political contexts in which it is used. So this means that we can't understand the emergence or the evolution or the use of particular words and concepts in an idealist way. That means just purely in terms of a history of ideas or the evolution of ideas. But it insists we have to explore them in terms of the real material, social um, and material contexts in which they're used. So, so, so bringing that back to your research, then I take it basically from what you're saying that you identified the word identity as a keyword. Is that right? And could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, exactly. And that was sort of a eureka moment for me. Um, and I remember at the time I used to smoke and I was standing at sort of convinced <laughs> that, that smoking sort of provided me with these marvelous insights into the workings of the world. But I, I was a multitasking smoker. So I was standing outside the research institute I worked in with Raymond Williams's keywords book in hand smoking and I realized that, it, <laughs> that the, the word identity wasn't in his original list of keywords um, and that for me was a eureka moment because at the time he was writing identity simply wasn't an important word it wasn't a keyword it, mm. or at least it was just emerging into common use and I, I'd say probably if he'd written the book a few years later it might have been included in his list so mm. So just to be clear, for Williams, keywords are common, really common and really mm. familiar words that hide a complexity of meaning mm. behind this familiarity, behind the sense that we all just know what that word means. Mm. And um, have we have we space for me to read you a little excerpt from? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Book? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this was probably the, the, the source of my eureka moment. Um, Williams wrote that for certain words, we find a history and complexity of meanings conscious changes or consciously different uses. Innovation, obsolescence, specialization, extension, overlap, transfer, 
or changes which are masked by nominal continuity so that the words which seem to have been there for centuries with continuous general meanings have come in fact to express radically different or radically variable yet sometimes hardly noticed meanings and implications of meaning. And I think that's absolutely the case um, with identity. Yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating framework. So, so what was revealed then... Uh, by treating identity as a keyword, that is, as a, as you just explained, as a, a politically charged word of the moment, rather than just a universal concept that has simply existed for centuries. So tell us what, what, what was, yeah. what was fruitful about looking at identity through that kind of lens. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Yeah, the, um, well, the keywords analysis revealed quite clearly that the meaning of the word identity had shifted over time. So it, it, mm. it originally was used to refer to that sameness of an entity to itself or the continuity of a self-same entity over time, as, as I mentioned a few moments ago. By the 1800s, um, the word had come to be used to what I refer to as legal identity. And this is the official invocation of a person as a particular person, identifiable through identity papers, fingerprinting, and other forms of what we still call ID. Mm. And um, it's now the sense at work in the notion of identity theft, for example, because it's mm. one's official rather than personal identity yeah. that is assumed to be stolen. And interestingly, though, I haven't had time to kind of ex- explore this um, in my book or, or subsequently, but I keep meaning to go back to it. Instantly, I- interestingly, this use um, emerged at a point in time that corresponded with the development of legal and political systems for managing populations, what Foucault called biopolitics. So, um, yeah, so there's a reason why that sense emerged in that period. But in in terms of the uses that I was particularly interested in, it wasn't until the late 50s and even early 60s that we find the word identity used in the senses with which we are so familiar today. So the first instances of what I'm calling personal identity which we use to refer to that which is unique, special, distinctive, or meaningful about ourselves, about a particular person, a particular self, our own self, um, that appeared in the 1950s. And this is the sense of identity that is at work in notions of identity crisis, if you feel yourself you know, having an identity crisis, I don't know who I am anymore, um, as well as you know, self-knowledge and self-esteem and things like personality, profile, and individuality. And uh, I, I remember when I was doing this research, my, my, my sister was about eight or nine at the time, and I, I used to harass people and say, what, what does identity mean to you? Try to get this snapshot of you know, what it yeah, meant to different yeah. people. And I, I said it to my very young sister, and she said, oh, it's easy. It just means profile. So that was at the, <laughs> that was at the height of the... That's a precocious eight-year-old. <laughs> precocious eight-year-old who had probably just found her own Facebook account legally or something at the time yeah so um um yeah so that's the personal sense and then in in the 1960s I found the first instances of identity in what I'm calling its social sense and that is to mean membership of a social category such that different social categories most typically categories of race ethnicity gender culture sexual orientation religion are themselves construed as different identities Yeah. So I suppose what's interesting about the keywords analysis is it is not just about the changing meanings of of the word, but looking at them, at the volume of use and what these two new senses of identity corresponded with an explosion in use of the word. Mm -hmm. So so there's my documentary analysis revealed a kind of an uptick in use of the word 
um, around the first, around the time the first uses of identity in these personal and social senses appeared, and then the explosion of use at the time that these meanings sort of consolidated and became so commonplace as to be utterly unremarkable. So um, I know this is sort of a long answer, but it's sort of no, probably no, a lot of the, no, 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 yeah, yeah, a bit of the meat of of the book. Yeah. Um, but what I conclude from this keywords analysis is that. In our modern uses, so the uses that we're familiar with now, the category of identity draws on those older suppressed meanings of sameness to offer a particular way of construing personhood and grouphood. And I think what these older connotations of oneness and sameness allow us or prompt us to do is to class individuals or groups as of a particular type. So it offers a way of saying, I really am this kind of person, and this is the mm. true me or the real me, or in the case of social identity, you really do belong to that group. And this is what philosophers call essentialism. Mm. So I, I think identity offers an essentializing way of construing personhood and grouphood. And what I claim in the book is that it functions as a modern classificatory device to characterize people or groups as of a particular kind through notions of personal and social identity. Mm. So, but just to wrap up that that you know that, that that sort of set of points, this finding I think really illustrates that claim um, or that that um, what Williams understood about keywords, which is that they are words whose problems of meaning are inextricably yeah. bound up with the problems they're used to discuss. So it's not yeah. accidental. Yeah. that the problems we now associate with the concept of identity are somehow also connected to, in some sense, rooted in the problems of meaning. That's what makes it a, a key a key word here. Yeah. And then the second part is that keywords analysis is never just a linguistic analysis. Yeah. And, and the analysis can't finish there. So the second important insight is that these evolving ideas change not only in relation to the words we use to describe them, but in relation to the social, cultural, and economic contexts in which they have those meanings or in which they're put to work. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, and I think what you've done with identity, as we'll explore, is really just an exemplary kind of um, illustration of those two points around, as you say, how it's inextricably bound up with the problems it's used to discuss and, as you said, the, the, the social, cultural, and economic context in which they're put to work. So, I mean, so just to go into that a little bit more, so what this cultural materialist analysis suggests is that the novelty of the word identity, as you say, is not just an interesting but nonetheless inconsequential piece of, you know, linguistic trivia. Really core to your argument is that it has social and political significance. Um, yeah. And as you say, its emergence is tied up with social changes in a particular socio-historical context. And I was really struck by the the line in one of your, well, in a couple of your in your book and I think in the other paper, that there was no identity before identity politics. So maybe just, you know, to help us, to help our listeners work through these these kind of really com kind of complex, but at the same time clear ideas. If we take the two senses of identity that you've just described there, the personal one, like your, like your sister's, you know, Facebook profile kind of sense of identity, the personal sense of identity and the social, and we've just unpacked a little so as to understand what was happening during the 1950s and 60s that made the use of those terms, uh, of the term identity, seem desirable. Yeah. So if we take the first one then, in, um, starting with the personal sense, like what was actually going on politically and socially that encouraged the usage of the term? So... The story we usually hear is that the advent of the consumer society in Western capitalist um, in the in the Western capitalist world dramatically affected how people formed their identities. 
such that from the 1950s, identity formation occurred primarily through consumption. But your research suggests something different. Um, what did your keyword analysis reveal about the relationship between personal identity and the rise of the consumer society? Yeah, thanks for that question, Eve. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm arguing that processes of consumption did not change how we understood or shaped our identities, but that they gave us the notion of personal identity as a particular means of understanding selfhood. So, mm. yeah, so to try to understand this, I think it's useful to look at the great theorists of consumption, uh, Veblen, Simmel and Bourdieu. And uh, an interesting point is that although these theor theorists are now reviewed as, as though they explicitly discussed identity, once again, they never even used the word. Even Bourdieu hardly uses it at all, and he was writing at a much later point in time. Mm -hmm. um, what they did discuss, however, was the way in which consumption had become explicitly bound up with processes of social emulation and distinction. And they all argued in various ways that people acquired and displayed social status, including difference from or similarity to significant others through how and what they consumed. Mm -hmm. So this is the idea, this is Veblen's idea of conspicuous consumption, that, when, that what you consume and how you consume there's no point doing it in the privacy of your own home. You need to do it in full sight of others so people can see, you know, your social class, who you are associated with, who you are dissociated from, and so on. Mm. And uh, Simmel argued something similar when he analyzed the burgeoning fashion industry. Mm. And in the 1960s, Marcuse of the Frankfurt School said that people recognize themselves in their commodities. They find their soul in their automobile hi-fi set split-level home, kitchen equipment. Now, this is often taken as an analysis of identity, but of course, he, 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 he's not at the point at all where he's using the word because it didn't mean at this point what it means now. But the, the idea there is, is nonetheless really important. And what I'm suggesting is that as these consumerist most motivations and pressures continue to develop, those ones documented so brilliantly mm. by those theorists, that they created a need to find a language to express the new social relations they were generating. And furthermore, since these changes in consumption practices tended to suppress and displace class conflict, but obviously not actually existing class inequality, they just yeah. pushed it onto yeah. cultural terrain, yeah, it was likely that this language would emerge in ostensibly neutral or non-class terms. So... What I, what I think is that the language of identity with its capacity to connote both an essential sameness with and an essential difference from others, that it would emerge as a perfect candidate. Indeed, it was in this period and in this context that the notion of personal identity emerged and came to be used as an especially attractive mode of self-conceptualization mm. in everyday life. Mm. And and further, you know, really interesting thing about this period is that it's particularly in, in, in the United States, but, but you know, emanating out from there as, as routinely happens, there was also a fear or a moral panic about the so-called mass society. Mm. So a key preoccupation of 1950s and 60s America in particular was how one could maintain a sense of individuality in a context of corporate standardization and repressive social homogeneity. And we also see that in, in, um, in the uprisings in the late 1960s. A lot of those were, you know, the, the student uprisings and mm. in, in France and across other um, global cities, there was this idea of this, that, that the dominant culture was 
was deeply socially repressive in enforcing a particular homogeneity on people. Mm. And, and this idea also animated many popular books and films of the time, including um, Man in a Grey Flannel Suit, The Organisation Man, The Lonely Crowd. So I think the emergent notion of identity must have offered here a very useful way of viewing the self, with the sense of personal identity in particular offering a vibrant antidote to the perceived grey uniformity of the mass society. So this is the possibility of being different by simply having an identity. Mm. Something about that phrase, oh, even just having identity, an identity sets you apart from the mass or from mm. the crowd. Mm. So significantly, I think the idea of identity in this period invited the problem it was assumed to settle. Now, once people are persuaded that they have an identity in the first place, in part by its very invention, they're motivated to try to find it, mm. obviously. Because if you're told everyone has an identity, you're going to look for yours. What, you yeah. know? <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, I think in the consumer society, this psychological or personal problem of finding identity finds a very ready solution in practices of consumption which allow for the construction of that identity, thereby finding and marking it at the same time. Yeah, it's so it's such an interesting discovery. And yeah. and yet parallel to that in your book, you're tracing a kind of a second use of the term identity, again, bound up with the social and historical context in which it emerges, but very, very different. Um, and this is the... Um, the, what you call the social sense of identity, in other words, the use of identity to describe certain forms of group-based politics. And again, you're suggesting that something really significant is happening here at this time. So I thought this was just so fascinating. Like, this is just one example from your book to show that across 15 speeches, Martin Luther King did not use the term identity once. But Malcolm X then began to refer to identity with some consistency from 1963 onwards. Um, so can you tell us what happened here? Why did some uh, race and gender-based groups come to pursue their claims for emancipation through the idiom of identity? What did this mean? But what do they mean? What do they mean by this? And, and, and why did this idea become politically and strategically useful? Yeah, that's exactly it, Neve. And that was a, a, like a really key and illuminating finding for me. I remember, you know, sort of nearly testing m my emerging ideas at this point and reading through all these Martin Luther King speeches and then there's, of course, digitized archives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, the word is you just never, ever use it. But then, you know, overlapping with some of Martin Luther King's speeches and then, and then you know, you know, kind of from the early to mid 60s onwards, Martin King very consistently started to talk about identity. Malcolm and I X, think, you mean? Yeah. Sorry, what did I say? Malcolm King. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Malcolm X. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Malcolm X. And, um, so what I think we see happening with, with the emergent use of the term identity in the new social movements of the 60s and 70s um, that radically distinguished the black power movement from the civil rights movement that preceded it, but also, which we might, we might get to talk about, that also distinguished the, the so-called women's liberation movement from earlier forms of um, equality-based activism for women is this use of the concept of identity. And mm. specifically in the black power movement, we see the language of identity used as a clarion call to those who had experienced oppression on account of their African heritage, yet who sought to use the same heritage as a source of pride and political mobilization, uh, building on group history, culture, and shared experiences. And see this really clearly in other key texts from the time. So perhaps the defining text of the black power um, movement 
by Touré and Hamilton. Um, it's called Black Power, The Politics of Liberation in America. And that was written and published in 1967. Um, Touré and Hamilton explicitly defined black power as black self-determination and black self-identity. And they make the case that this achievement of black power was a vital first step in a bigger project of dealing effectively with the problems of racism in American society. So although the first expression of identity politics is widely attributed to the, the founding statement of the Coombahee River Project, who wrote that focusing on our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics and that the most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, these, these two quotes are, you know, mm very widely quoted yeah. as sort of the start of identity politics. Yeah. But they weren't written until the late 70s. It, it seems to be the founding statements of the Black Power movement um, and other texts from this time captured this political impetus at least a decade earlier. Mm. So, for example, in order to end racism, Touré and Hamilton wrote that black people in the United States must challenge the very nature of society itself and that crucially to do this, we must first redefine ourselves. Our basic need, quote, is to reclaim our history and our identity from what must be called cultural terrorism. We shall have to struggle for the right to create our own terms through which to define ourselves and our relation to society and to have these terms recognised. So I think we can trace the emergence of the concept of identity in its social sense to this period of struggle and political activism. Mm, that's, it's so interesting because I think it really shows the value of a really close Keyword reading, as yeah. you, given that, as you said, the common assumption is that it began, that the word first really was popularized in the social sense by the Combahee River Project. And yet, yeah. as you show, a close reading of the text shows that something else was going on prior to this, you know, yeah. so it's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was really a useful idea. Like it wasn't happenstance or accidental that they yes, hit on the yes, term yes, identity. Yes, yeah, you yeah. Know, the, the idea of identity was useful here because... Because it allowed an understanding of social difference, not in terms of natural or biological difference. And that's an idea that was already successfully discredited in the civil rights movements. But instead of terms of a shared, in terms of a shared culture and experiences. So there's, of course, a long, a long history to this kind of thinking about group experiences. But it wasn't explicitly couched in terms of the idiom of identity until the 60s. Mm -hmm. And while the idea of identity allowed for rejection of notions of racial or biological inferiority, it nonetheless, precisely because of the way in which it enabled the naming of essential similarities with others, it nonetheless allowed people to identify group-based oppression while at the same time encouraging the expression of group pride. Mm. So it's not also not, you know, it's not a coincidence that pride, you know, was the term then that emerged as sort of iconic mm. the gay liberation movement mm. um, just a year, a couple, of, a couple of years after after this. Mm. Um, so I think this new way of thinking about the self and its relation to groups and society, um, specifically via the category of social identity, challenged other more universalistic ways of thinking and the derivative political claims which focused on individual rights, but which you know, in the aftermath of the civil rights movement and during them and during them indeed, were found to inadequately account for the group's specificity of various mm. forms of oppression. Yeah. And as well as cultivating a sense of pride in group membership, this sort of um this sort of feature or function of the term was that it also fomented a capacity to act collectively on the parts of people who did mm. say they shared this this same identity. 
I think that's such an interesting insight and we'll come back to it when we come on to identity politics yeah. because of the, con- the very controversy around whether or not identity and identity politics can be emancipatory, can be egalitarian, can be can contribute to a kind of social transformation at all. So we'll, we'll dig we'll dig into that later on. But right. um, I think it's such an interesting insight. But um, and you also found something similar going on within the feminist movement at the time. Is that right? So your your keyword analysis, as you said, you've just illuminated there within the uh, within Black Pride and civil rights. But uh, the women's movements were sim- similarly it emerged at that time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So. Um Interestingly, and it's the exact, it's the same shift from the, you know, from an earlier type of kind of civil rights based or equality based politics to a variety of politics that was deliberately more liberatory in character and that used mm. the language of liberation and oppression rather than sort of equality and, because say, color blindness yeah, or yeah, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. And um, again, you know, whereas the earlier feminist speeches and documents associated with the women's rights movement with with um, now and other movements, so, you know, with Betty Friedan and others, which called for and used the language of political equality with men. And the word identity never appeared there. It was about kind mm. of equal pay for equal work, equal representation, mm. equal respect, things like that. Later documents, um, and I found like a lot of kind of very interesting early sort of magazines or pamphlets associated mm. with the women's uh, liberation movement, they tended to see their oppression and the sources for resistance to it in terms of their specific identity as women. And they were explicit about this. They referred to a female identity or a woman's identity as the source of their oppression, but also as a source of potential resistance. So this notion of a, of a woman's identity or female identity at the time offered alternative ways of thinking about what it means to be or to become a woman without relying on, and in fact, explicitly rejecting, again, discredited and dangerous notions of biological essentialism. But it nonetheless replaced these with cultural essentialism, with the, you know, that women were, um, had a shared identity in virtue of shared experiences, shared Mm. outlooks, Mm. shared values. And it's in this sense that the phrase, you know, the sisterhood is powerful, is meaningful. That's not a, this is a, a culturally essentialist sisterhood understood to be made up by women who had experienced similar forms of oppression, but who are mobilizing through their female identity um, against it. Mm, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's it's so interesting. And um, what yeah. I think is so significant about the two senses of identity that you've just described, yeah, you know, the personal sense and the social sense, is that the former, um, the personal sense was deployed in a manner which shored up the logic of capitalism. And obviously then the, the second, as you've just said there, the second sense um, of identity that was uh, deployed uh, was oriented to, by Malcolm X and by the Women's Liberation Movement, was, was oriented towards liberation. Yeah. Um, so, so what's the significance of that difference in your view? Yeah, you're really you're capturing the, the two vectors really well, Niamh. Um So I, I suppose I think that that this more nuanced history reveals the paucity of some contemporary challenges to or even defences of identity and identity politics today. Because on the one hand, you have some groups, including some on the left, who refuse, who absolutely refuse to see any emancipatory potential to the concept of identity or to identity politics generally. And they tend to view all identity claims and all identity politics as divisive, self-interested, a bourgeois distraction or, or whatever. Yeah. 
But the history of the emergence of identity politics shows that this is emphatically not the case and that the concept played a key role in enabling activists to think through and mobilize against various specific forms of oppression under capital, capitalism, as well as under various racial and gendered um, structures of domination. So I suppose maybe what I didn't say, what I should have said a few moments ago is that, I, and it was in relation to your point about whether there is identity before identity politics, the idea of identity was part and parcel of the emergence of, of what I think of as identity yeah. politics. And it was the idea of identity in that social sense that lent itself well to understandings of liberation and freedom from oppression. Mm. So that, that's sort of one vector. But at the same time, there are some contemporary proponents of identity claims or understandings that doggedly refuse to see that sometimes the logic of identity can dovetail with the logic of capitalism. Uh, both in terms of its alignment with consumerist practices and motivations, but also more recently in terms of its alignment with sort of the neoliberal, diverse and so-called woke versions of capitalism that increasingly prevail. And I'm, yeah. I'm thinking here, of course, of those varieties of feminist and racial identity politics that have no quibble with inequality generally, but just with the fact that those at the top, you know, CEOs, senior politicians, Hollywood stars, professors, that they're not as diverse in racial and gender terms as those at the bottom. Yeah. So yeah. I think we, we need a much more nuanced, careful and historically sensitive understanding of identity and its uses if we are to deal with the so-called identity politics debates today. And more importantly, if we are to really understand the challenges and opportunities of certain forms of groups group-based politics that use the idea of identity yeah. in, in our current very highly stratified societies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and um, as I said, we'll, we'll go on to discuss that further um, in a little while. But so if it's the case that identity was used by some emancipatory groups, but not others, where does that leave it as an appropriate descriptor? And relatedly, what does that mean for how we should understand and use the concept of identity politics? Yeah, so I think um, I think the language of identity politics is completely out of control. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, which isn't the same as thinking I should that, that we should throw it out altogether. Yeah. But it, yeah, so but it current, is, you're right. It is. It's completely out of control. Yeah, yeah. it's wild now at this stage. So <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you just have a cursory look at Twitter, which you know should come with a personal health warning, but it's used to refer to like if you just search hashtag identity politics on Twitter, which I'm not advising you to do, but if you were to do this, <laughs> you'd find that it's used to revert to all gender, racial and LGBTQ politics, all of them. OK, it's sometimes used to refer to class politics. It's used to refer to call out culture, so-called. Mm, mm. It's used to refer to sort of uh, strategic ruses by politicians to or, or marketers to appeal to specific constituencies. So this idea of, say, playing the race card or mm, the pink mm. pound or whatever. Mm. Um, it's also used to refer to the behaviour of uh, an apparently new, self-obsessed, easily offended generation, the so-called snowflake generation, which, by the way, I haven't encountered at all in all my years of teaching at UCD. But mm. nonetheless, it's 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 also used in a derogative manner to refer to this generation. And it's also used to refer to a very virulent form of liberal or neoliberal individualism. So it's massively unhelpful. And yeah, it's... Yeah facilitates i think a lot of a lot of bad faith critiques of identity politics so for example if you find fault with for example so-called call-out culture mm. and then say well that's an example of identity politics that then allows you to throw out 
all forms of gender and race-based organizing that also fall under the banner of identity politics. So a lot of very unhelpful sleights of hand and slippages can go on with this, you know, the use of identity politics to refer to such a vast array of, yeah. of, of and, disparate and, and things. And that's present within academia and, and within popular discourse. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, if I had to ask, you know, my eight-year-old sister is now in her early 20s if I was to ask her what's identity politics now she probably wouldn't have been able to give such a succinct answer as she did you know 12 years ago just in terms of how the discourse has proliferated in in this really unhelpful way so how should we use the term identity politics I think we should reserve the term to refer to any form of politics that mobilizes specifically and meaningfully around the concept of identity so This distinguishes identity politics from earlier phases of group-based activism in which the idea of identity was utterly meaningless and also later phases of group-based activism in which the idea, though generally meaningful, doesn't do any organizing or ideational work in in that movement. So Mm. to give an example, and I, I, I sometimes can't believe I have to give this example, but here we go. To give an example, not all gender politics are identity politics. So so some variants of gender politics, so that is politics that mobilize around gender issues, some of them deploy the idea of identity in a meaningful and central way. And yes, these are a form of gender-based identity politics. By the same token, other variants of gender politics do not deploy the idea of identity at all, Mm. but rely on other conceptualizations such as equality and justice to build their group understandings and make their claims. And these can't be considered an instance of identity politics. So then thinking of, you know, gender-based activism for, you know, equal pay for equal work, that, yeah, yeah. that's mobilizing around the, the concept of gender, but not around the concept of identity. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's just an important point to, to, really important. to, yeah. to make. Yeah. And, you know, another important, important point is that just because gendered sexual and racial so- social positions have recently come to be termed identities, in the social sciences and politics. Again, this is something we can trace. This only started to happen in the 1970s. Up till then, they were called social categories or social divisions. But from the 70s, gendered, sexual and racial social positions came to be referred to as these things called social identities. But just because this is the case doesn't mean that any politics carried out on racial, gendered or sexual grounds or in pursuit of racial, gender or sexual equality are by definition identity politics. Yeah. But this is precisely the slippage that regularly occurs in political commentary and in academic analysis. And it has really unhelpful consequences yeah, for, yeah. for theory and, and political practice. Yeah, it really does. Um, and so then, I mean, related to that point about the kind of theory and political practice, what in your view then is the relationship between identity politics in the way that you specify it rather than the... I suppose the mischaracterization that you that you've described and class politics. Yeah. So, well, I think if you understand identity politics in this sense, it challenges the common assumption that identity politics are just simplistically opposed to class politics or the mm. other of or the opposite to class politics. Mm. So, some forms of class politics do mobilize around the category of identity. And thus they exist as a form of identity politics. So you can see this, the most recent prominent obvious example of this is the 
politics and discourse of the white working class male as the new most oppressed minority. And if you look at any, you know, <clears throat> men's rights or alt-right organizations or any organizations that are concerned with this, they absolutely use the category of identity. It's deeply yeah. meaningful to its pro- yeah. protagonists. So mm-hmm. that is a form of class-based identity politics. But as we know, not all class politics, most of them don't, in fact, <clears throat> mobilize around the concept of identity at all, but rather around, you know, relative positions in relations of production. And they're yeah. not identity politics. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, that's one point. Then the other is that we can't assume that all ostensibly non-class politics are concerned with identity. So that's mm. the other assumption that happens. So um, many gender, race, sex-based politics, as I've already said, you know, mobilize around issues of employment, income, economic equality, or other supposedly class-based concerns. And, you know, yeah. for example, the 1963 African-American-led March on Washington was yeah. called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Um, so, you know, and that's sometimes now mischaracterized as an identity politics initiative when it absolutely yeah. wasn't. Yeah. So it's not helpful to oppose class politics to identity politics as routinely occurs. I, I think we have to look at instead how the idea of identity is put to work in a wide range of group-based politics. And that may include class politics as well as race or gender politics. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, in subsequent, like in your, in your book, you, you, you trace that the, um, you know, all the stuff you've outlined about the historicization of, of, um, of identity, but in, in later work, and I suppose this corresponds with what you've described in terms of the explosion and the proliferation of the concept of identity politics. You've tried to grapple with some of those some of those debates or 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 controversies. Um, and um, so, in 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 a, in a recent article in the European Journal of Social Theory, which is called "Untroubling Identity Politics: A Culturalist Materialist Intervention." You've identified five central questions at the heart of so-called identity ba- debates, um, and I would be, I would really love to just go through some of those. Could go through each of those in turn, if it's okay, because I think yep. they just bring such an, such clarity to these controversies. But maybe just before we get into that, am I right in saying that you're concerned with these issues and you're concerned to engage and intervene in these um, debates? Um, specifically from the perspective of left academia and activism. In other words, you're not here to ind- endorse or give airtime to the familiar right-wing or reactionary critiques, but to try to productively resolve some of those issues from an equality perspective. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, my aim is is definitely to move us beyond the so-called identity politics debate as they are currently formulated, you know, to try and help us think about when identity politics in the specified sense are useful to progressive politics or egalitarian politics broadly understood and when they might work against them. It's not sort of an attempt to sort of, um, you know, hear both sides or to have a sort of a a spiked or some sort of kind of reactionary, you know, damning of all forms of, of identity politics. I'm not interested. That is... That is the terrain of the debate now in one respect, and I'm absolutely not interested in entering that terrain, but very much in in, in dismissing it a bit and moving beyond it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the first critique, um, so going back to the five areas that you've identified in that and intervening in that article, um, the first critique of identity politics that you pick out is the claim that identity politics tend towards essentialism, which um, you've earlier defined, but just to remind people, it's the claim that um, such politics promote the idea that members of the group in question share some intrinsic quality or characteristic. 
And this kind of essentialism has been heavily critiqued on the basis, for example, that it can smother difference, while others in the more post-structuralist camp have responded by saying that identity is not essentialist, that it is inevitably contingent, fluid, unstable, and so forth. So tell us, what does your research tell us about this debate? Is the idea of identity always essentialist? And does this even matter politically or strategically? Yeah, thanks, Neve. Um, I think it's true that identity politics in the specified sense do tend towards essentialism. I, I think this is because, as I've argued, the idea of identity is itself an intrinsically essentializing idea insofar as the basic grammar of claims making that it enables is the assertion of sameness, whether it is in a personal sense where it you know, describes sort of the continuity of your individual uniqueness over time, mm. um, or in a social sense where it describes, as we've discussed, the shared constitutive features of a particular social groups, a particular social group. But um, such essentialist claims are not necessarily biological either, or naturalistic, as is routinely assumed, but they're often psychological or cultural in character. So, as we've said, gender-based identity politics do not, for example, depend on asserting the category of womanhood through reference to nature, but may do so through reference to experience, power, um, socialization, and and mm. cultural mm. norms, for example. So, you know, I mean, maybe it's a, a slight sidestep, but I think some of the, um, I don't even really want to call it a debate, but, you know, b- between... Um, people supporting trans rights and people sort of attacking them, they're both often rooted in essentialist arguments around what constitutes womanhood. It's not that one is essentialist and the other is non-essentialist. On the one hand, anti-trans activists are saying that in order to to qualify for the category of womanhood, you have to exhibit certain biological features that are, you know, the essence of what it means to be a woman. Whereas people who you know, trans activists and people who defend trans rights are much more likely to give an account of womanhood that's based on culturally essentialist features, you know, to do with gender identity, to do with experience, socialization, cultural norms, to do with a person's sense of self, all these things that aren't rooted in nature, but are rooted broadly, let's say, in in mm. in culture and so on. So um, I also think that the backlash against essentialism that informs uh, much of the critique of identity politics isn't really warranted. And I, I think um, I think essentialism is itself widely misunderstood as well as maligned, you know, for, for, for the wrong reasons. So making an essentialist claim does not involve specifying that the characters at stake derive from nature, but simply that they are characteristics the entity in question must have in order to be classified as an entity of that kind. So, you know, you can make an essentialist argument about a table. You're just saying that in order to be counted as a table, um, this thing must have four legs and a flat top or whatever you think its essential characteristics are. So that's why so many of those debates are about essentialism. But essentialism in itself isn't isn't a flawed um, philosophical, you know, way of defining categories Um, and politically essentialism can be a necessary and useful device so Mm. Gayatri Spivak famously argued um, in favour of strategic essentialism which Mm. she said involves temporarily presenting the group of which one forms a part in essentialist terms in order to achieve some political goals and she said this can be very powerful as a mobilising claims making force and I think she's absolutely you know, right in that. I mean, just even to be part of a social movement, sometimes 
means engaging in that kind of strategic essentialism. You know, let's agree for now that we are going to mobilize as this kind of group in favor of yeah. these kind of goals. Yeah. It doesn't mean forever and always. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, yeah. it's strategic. It's in order to achieve a particular political end at a particular moment in time. Yeah. So, of course, essentialist organizing carries problems that we all know now. They're very well rehearsed. So essentialist organizing can be reductive, stereotyping, othering, falsely homogenizing, you know, dangerously exclusive or very punitive towards difference. That's all true. But I think in each case, it's the activists who, who ought to decide whether engaging in such essentializing strategies is useful or damaging to their yeah. overall political yeah. goal. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, to take an example, white supremacists today engaging in identity politics might indeed decide that emphasizing the intrinsic sameness of white men and their difference from other races in order to persuade of their more oppressed or more superior status, they might decide that's politically congruent with their overall goals. Where, for example, socialist feminists might decide that the equivalent essentializing claims in their case are damaging to their overall goals of equality. I think that's a really, really interesting, I think it's a really helpful intervention, you know. Yeah. Because I think even even if you haven't even read, even if you haven't kind of like, engage that much with essentialist debates around essentialism you're sort of almost primed to say no essentialism bad you know yeah. what I mean yeah. <laughs> like it's just an almost an, an intellectual instinct but yeah. even if you just <laughs> tangentially around these things do you know what I mean yeah yeah and it's but you know any philosopher will just say oh, no, no, essentialism is just it's just a tool we use in order to determine whether a particular entity is an example of a particular category or not. Does it have the features? Does it display the features it has to display in order to be considered um, an entity of that kind? You know, so you can get the features wrong. You can say, yeah, you yeah. can pick out, you know, you can say, oh, you know, in order to be a woman or in order to be a girl, you have to display these particular, you could be absolutely wrong on that. Yeah, yeah, but that sure, doesn't mean sure. an essentialist approach to thinking about it is wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, you raised the point, you know, that, on the other hand, there's kind of a postmodern, or I think you said a post-structuralist critique um, of identity when they say, oh, you know, you have it all wrong. Identity isn't isn't essentialist. And, I, you know, to that I say, well, fine. The, the category of identity is essentialist by definition. The problem is that there are different ways of viewing people in groups that aren't essentialist. But what the postmodernists have failed to notice is that it is the very use of the word identity to describe both personhood and grouphood that is exactly what makes the essentialist conceptualization they argue against not only unlikely, but almost unavoidable. So social constructionists who argue that identity is fluid, identity in inverted commas is fluid, negotiable, constructed and unfixed are to my mind, barking up the wrong tree. If they truly believe that selves and groups are messy and changing entities, which actually I think is a defensible claim, and I'm probably in that camp myself, they should argue instead that identity, because it carries connotations of fixity, oneness and permanence, is not therefore a good concept to use to describe and understand self and grouphood. Mm, mm. But that that almost never happens. Yeah. I, don't, I haven't seen it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the next kind of set of debates or controversies um, that you address in that paper is um, 
the claim or the complaint against identity politics that it inevitably privileges recognition over redistribution. In other words, that identity politics focuses more on challenging invisibility, misrecognition, cultural imperialism, negative stereotyping, etc., at the expense of claims for more equal distribution of material resources. And as I'm sure many listeners will know, this has been particularly associated with Nancy Fraser and her by well now known work on the redistribution recognition dilemma and her subsequent debates with the likes of of Judith Butler. Um, So in your review, Marie, is is Fraser correct here? Do identity politics understood in the sense that you have delineated it, in other words, politics that specifically mobilises and meaningfully mobilises around the concept of identity, do you feel that it does inevitably displace redistribution in favour of recognition? Um, well, yes, identity politics in the specified sense, they certainly do promote a politics of recognition, understood in the philosophical sense of achieving respect for groups who have suffered disrespect in the form of invisibility, misrecognition, cultural imperialism, negative stereotyping, you know, demeaning, belittling, and lots more. And mm. You know, that these are valid and legitimate political aims for leftist politics, I think hardly needs to be said. And yet it does need to be said. So there, I'm I'm saying it. (laughs) We're saying it. it. (laughs) But do these recognition politics pull against a politics of redistribution? Um, Well, I think Iris Marion Young pointed out many years ago, not necessarily. You know, many groups rightly recognise that achieving what Fraser calls recognition is a means to the economic and social equality and freedom that she brings under the category of redistribution. And that was mm. a, a quote there from Iris Marion Young mm. in one of her responses to, to Fraser. But I, I think perhaps a more pressing issue has to do with the logic of identity. And as Wendy Brown pointed out, there is a danger that identity, politi- identity politics in the, in the specified sense um, exist as a form of a wounded attachment, which must reproduce and maintain the forms of suffering they oppose in order to continue to exist. Now, I think we can actually see this clearly in relation to social class. So if the category of identity is used to understand and, you know, mobilize around social class issues in a context where a positive recognition of this identity is sought, the solutions arrived at will necessarily settle on valorizing that working class identity rather than undercutting the grounds for its, for its existence. Yeah. So, so while there are many gains to achieving respect for working class people who routinely suffer extreme forms of disrespect in the form of stereotyping, belittling, hypervisibility, invisibility, scapegoating and lots more, Many people have also questioned whether that is an appropriate political goal, since, as Terry Eagleton put it, to be working class just is to be oppressed. And social class as a structural feature of political economy is something we want to eradicate, really, ra- yeah. rather than yeah. celebrate and maintain. So that's that's the difficulty there. It's yeah. not that you yeah. want to say, you know, struggles for recognition for social class are, are really important in, yeah. in the sense of working against all those forms of disrespect. But at the same time, you know, the bigger goal clearly is to get rid of social, social class, class altogether. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. That's, the, that's kind of the dilemma there. So Frazier, I don't think she particularly looks at, at the question of social class, but she does argue that the so-called uh, recogni- redistribution recognition dilemma can be finessed, as she puts it, by shifting from affirmative remedies that maintain rather than undermine the structures producing inequality 
<clears throat> to transformative remedies that combine radical restructuring of political economy with radical deconstruction of oppressive social categories. Mm. Uh, I think she's correct to say that transformative re remedies are, lo are logically the way to go as they don't pull against each other and are more likely to lead to real change. And it's hard to see how identity would have a very significant role in this bigger transformative project as its essentializing impulse will tend, it really, I think it really will tend towards the valorization rather than the breakdown or disregard for difference, mm. um, which is required by the forms of transformation Fraser discusses. So I do think that this issue nonetheless might be mitigated by the potential for those involved in a solidaristic form of identity politics to form coalitions mm. as part of a broad-based, inclusive, you know, anti-capitalist, anti-racist, uh, anti-sexist, etc. politics. Mm. And this kind of kind of coalition, you know, might be a more feasible route given people's current attachment to their identities. And as Fraser says, the fact that sometimes completely transformative remedies where we, you know, smash political economy as we know it and break down all identity categories just seems such a, such an unimaginable stretch yeah. at the moment. It might be where we end up, but I don't think it's how we get there. Yeah, yeah. That's so helpful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's referred to this in, in, in your writings as well. Some writers like Lisa Duggan and Karen and Barbara Fields and uh, Gargi uh, Vatacharya uh, have shown that racism and patriarchy and heteronormativity have been structurally intertwined with the evolution of capitalism, such that battles against each of these systems have been and should be interconnected. Um, so, I mean, you've kind of touched on this here, but what, what role, if any, can, can identity politics, as you specified it, play in this wider project of transformation? Yeah, um, I've been really taken with these writers and their arguments. I think you've picked out some, you know, people who are doing the, the best work at the moment. Gargi Bhattacharya is really doing am amazing stuff on racial capitalism. Mm. And Karen and Barbara Fields, I know their book Race Craft, you know, the, the kind of key essay from it was published, was it even 30 years ago now? But it's really um, come into its own again at the moment. And and I'm particularly convinced by all, all these people's claims that capitalism and racism um, are historically and materially intertwined and, and co-evolutionary. And I think there's a very famous um, line from the Fields sisters. They write that, in their writing really kind of against a culturalist understanding of racism, they say probably a majority of Americans think of slavery in the United States as primarily a system of race relations as though the chief business of slavery were the production of white supremacy rather than the production of cotton, sugar, rice and tobacco. So mm, mm. it just shows how modern, you know, forms of capitalism and racism are so co-intertwined at their, at their source in these yeah. very extractive and exploitative ways. Yeah. And um, But I think what this means is that if you take these arguments seriously, it, it's impossible to articulate a truly anti-racist politics that isn't also anti-capitalist, but also an anti-capitalist politics that isn't also anti-racist. You know, they, yeah. they, they, yeah. they have to go together. And I think in terms of then what, what is the role of identity politics as we now know it in, in, in challenging, um, you know, racism, capitalism, when you have these understandings, I think the work of... Um, philosopher Linda Martine Alcoff is is very useful here and she argues that 
Contrary to common belief, identity-based collective political action towards a common goal or, or set of goals, including the radical transformation of classed, racialized societies, she argues against the, the idea that that's impossible, that identity politics doesn't have a role here. She says that the set of interests presumed to be attached to particular identities, whether a broad category like women or an intersectional category like black working class women, um, are no more and no less exclusivist or particularist than those attached to any other vantage point in the world. And she picks out here really the sort of uh, supposedly neutral, but in reality, white male middle class figure of, of liberal theory. Mm. And she says that failing to appreciate this means we may end up also failing to recognize the diversity of experiences shaped by capitalism. And therefore, I think, crucially, the full range of potential points of resistance to mm. the system. Okay, so, mm. you know, capitalism and and its intertwining with structures of racism and heteronormativity and, you know, gender inequality, that will shape people's experiences yeah. differently yeah. According, to, according to their identities. But those identities then provide a new vantage point precisely in virtue of experiencing those oppressions in a particular way and highlight particular ways of intervening or challenging the, the systems, the yeah. interrelated systems. Yeah. So yeah. this means though opening up, you know, radical opportunities for inter intergroup alliances and coalition bu coalition building and what um John Baker calls strategic pluralism. Mm. Because mm. social transformation is in this model understood to follow from a radically inclusive multi-constituent multi-constituency politics rather than from some kind of false universalism that is necessarily exclusive. So I do yeah. think identity politics, yeah, ha have, a, have, a, have a particular um, role to play. But mm. um, I might say more on that in, in a yeah. moment. I'll leave it at that yeah. for the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, it's really helpful. And, and, I, and I mean, related really to that is the next kind of set of, I suppose controversies maybe relating to identity politics that you, that you specifically address are around the question of solidarity. Um, and I suppose like, like one of the successes of social movements by women or, you know, by negatively racialized groups has been to illuminate how appeals to universality or commonality have sometimes or maybe often worked to exclude and subordinate and invisibilize disempowered groups. So, of course, we can think here of critiques by black women of white led feminism. And it's that kind of ex that false universalism that you've mentioned there. Um, but another point of controversy in relation to identity, pol identity politics is that appeals to identity undermine solidarities between different oppressed groups and social movements. And, you know, a really interesting recent maybe Irish example of this, which you refer to in one of your papers, was the online furore over the so-called Cop on Comrades letter in 2017, which was, you know, disseminated online and widely discussed on Twitter. And this was an episode in which 400 Irish feminists, who were all women, wrote a public letter to some male comrades, as they call them, on the left, critiquing their support of the view that, and this is a quote from the letter, identity politics is good for nothing except dividing movements. And for promoting the narrative that, again, a quote, straight white men are the most oppressed group. So I think you offer a really illuminating analysis of that. So could you tell us a little bit about what your view is on the relationship between identity politics and solidarity? Yeah. So there's a lot here. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the position of the so-called comrades that was rightly challenged in the letter firstly really points up some of the confusions with with these comrades' critique of identity politics and what they imagine identity politics to be. Because on one hand, the comrades in question are critical 
of so-called identity politics, arguing that it's divisive of potentially larger movements that we, you know, we assume they think should be united in a kind of a class or anti-capitalist politics. But on the other hand, the so-called comrades are rightly accused of promoting the view that straight white men are the new most oppressed group. And as I discussed a few moments ago, this is itself a form of identity politics properly understood. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, so, so even to kind of engage with that debate, you know, you, there's always this work to do around what is meant by identity politics and is it being used in this really unhelpful, expansive way and trying to pin down what actually counts as identity mm-hmm. politics and, and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then, you know, I do think that the the you mentioned you know so the earlier um, black feminists who argued that a, a, um, a supposedly universal universal feminism for all in fact prioritised the voices and experience of white women. I mean this is absolutely incontrovertible. Like this is dead dead right. Mm. And as you say, many many groups were made invisible and disempowered through through these putative appeals to university or commonality. Again, mm. this is all absolutely true and has led to the huge and valid interest in questions of intersectionality. Um, which, you know, is very needed and and welcome and so on. But to me, this does not mean throwing out claims to universality or commonality and relatedly to the question of solidarity. It involves throwing out claims to false universality Mm. and false commonality, which I think is what many of those earlier positions were. So I think that appeals to our common humanity, which I understand politically in terms of equality. I think they remain massively important morally, politically, strategically. But this can't mean repressing difference, especially where that difference is the effect of inequality, as it often is. So often what is at stake in so-called identity politics are forms of difference that arise from the unequal treatment of different groups. So to say that appeals to identity undermine solidarity between different oppressed groups, I think is to misunderstand what is at stake here. So you know, relating back to you know, what I was saying about Linda Martine Alcoff, identity gives groups a revalued political mm. position from which to speak and act in commonality with others who've had a similar similar oppressive set of experiences. And it is precisely in recognition of shared oppression that I think solidarity can arise. It doesn't have to be a shared identity. So it doesn't have to be the same experience of oppression, but op- but opposition to inequality and oppression generally I think, can provide a glimpse of a common humanity and a common reason to act. And uh, as Paul Gilroy said, identity should not be the whole of my politics, but the entry point to my politics. Yeah. And I think that's dead right. And I would add that if if also founded on principles of equality and emancipation, this can include but extend far beyond those local informative points of entry that, yeah. that arise from you know, mobilizing around your identity. Yeah, no, that's a really helpful distinction. And so maybe just to take that even a little bit further um, around the univer- the place of universalist political claims and values and the struggle for to- social transformation. If an identity such as gender identity or black identity or white identity has been created via oppressive social relationships and hierarchies, would or should they be put out of business altogether in a truly egalitarian world? Yeah, so, you know, this comes back to sort of what I mentioned a few moments ago about the dilemmas of the appropriateness of recognition politics in relation to class politics. And, you know, what you said there, yes, in one way, that's absolutely a logical conclusion to my argument. But I guess I'm not ready to affirm that yet or to go there yet, because I I think it moves us too far into an idealizing political space Mm. that's 
too far removed from the material realities of political struggles now. Yeah. Um, I suppose I think also, even if it's analytically true um, in real life, in terms of how relations and communities and shared practices evolve, um, even if born out of oppression, people continue to make their own history in circumstances not of their own choosing. And, yeah. you know, to use that yeah. often used quote from Marx. And yet, to, and to make this history in positive, life-affirming, mutually enhancing ways, even if the reason, you know, for holding an identity in the first place is as a product yeah. of generations yeah. of inequality and hierarchy and oppression. So people do nonetheless use yeah. this identity yeah. and these it experiences for them yeah absolutely yeah. and yeah. in you know life-affirming ways and I also can't see a world without social identities though perhaps we can see a world without such high stakes attached to different identity positions yeah. Yeah, and descriptions yeah, yeah. and you know yeah. forms of entitlement yeah yeah um so the um a- another um at the final kind of whatever uh point of controversy that you address in that paper is is so-called call-out culture which you've mentioned once or twice and like we know and we, we've kind of alluded to this a couple of times in our conversation that a lot of these controversies for better or worse for better or worse surrounding identity politics get played out online especially on the yeah. likes of twitter um, and one of the characteristics of this is the phenomenon of call-out culture whereby people especially those regarded as being in positions of privilege are challenged for oppressive opinions um, actions or language so what, in your view, is the relationship, if any, between call-out culture and identity politics as you have specified it? And do you think calling out is legitimate or do you feel there's any limitations strategically, politically, epistemologically? Yeah, it's a, um, a great question and another kind of tricky one. But for what it's worth, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think there is an affinity between identity politics, as I have specified it, and call-out culture because... Within identity politics, people are incentivized to valorize a specifically defined group according to their collective self-understandings and experiences. So the impetus is is to challenge people, both politically and morally, for a misconstrual here, mm. on the understanding that this is just not offen- not just offensive, but a very source of their oppression. And you know that's that's fair enough in in my view. Um, but at the same time, as we can identify an affinity. I, it's difficult to understand why every instance of challenging some person or group for an abusive use of language, you know, racist behavior, the creation of unsafe spaces or whatever it is, it's difficult to understand why this should be construed as an instance of identity politics. You know, I think these tactics have always been part of anti-racist, feminist and other progressive organizing and do not always depend on the language or concept of identity. You know, sometimes it's just about saying, you know, you can't behave in that way. You can't make these assumptions about our group. You can't belittle us in this way. You can't speak on our behalf. You can't reduce us to a single type. You know, sometimes those complaints have to do with the concept of identity and sometimes they don't. Yeah. Um, mm. And then more generally, I, I, I think it's it's maybe not that calling out is a problem but that it can become become a problem where it exists in isolation as the only political strategy used, or perhaps the most visible political strategy. So um, I do think there might be an issue where calling out derives from a very strict identity-based version of standpoint theory. On, on these grounds, only those who've experienced the hurt are deemed equipped to understand or analyze or, or speak to it. And while space absolutely 
must be made in, in every movement for these voices and analyses. I'm, I'm also, you know, taken by what critical theory, which tells us that power can also operate in a way that it obscures or distorts people's own interests from them. And this is at the heart of theories of ideology, for example. So I think we need to examine how power works in a way that can lead to the emancipation of all groups. And this maybe suggests that calling out based on experiential knowledge is is not the problem, but rather a refusal to situate this experiential knowledge within a broader critical analysis of relations and systems of power that can't all be understood as a function of experience, though yeah. certainly some, some of them can. Yeah. And, and, you know, strategically, you know, it, it seems the problem is not so much that call-out culture happens as that it's the only thing that happens yeah. and that the politics of a group can get stuck at the point of calling out. And I can understand why this might be so. I mean, it, it be, it could well be because of the hostile environment in which many groups find themselves, where, you know, we're justifying their position against aggressive and repetitive critiques from the right and the left yeah. has led to a, you know, a very defensive batten down the hatches kind of politics. And um, in, in effect, I think, you know, certain groups are, are kind of forced into that defensive position and they don't have much resources or energy to kind of go beyond what's yeah. known as calling out. But even as I understand this, I think the power of calling out could be both limited and enhanced by combining with other tactics, especially those ones we've talked about, you know, concerned with building solidarity with other groups who mightn't have experienced the exact same forms of oppression, but who might nonetheless have have reasons to challenge the particular shape of neoliberal racist capitalism, Mm -hmm. you know, and forging alliances and establishing maybe the relatedness of what seemed to be very diverse forms of inequality. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I was really struck by a line in that paper um, where you write, and this is a quote, uh, something in short supply on the left these days, it seems to me, is a willingness to engage in good faith with projects for equality or justice that are articulated in terms other than one's own, free from both aggressive calling out and supercilious sneering at a presumed foe or careerist moralism. And that really resonated with me, and I suspect it resonated with many others. Could you maybe just tell us a little bit more, a little bit more about this view and, and the trends that you're referring to? Yeah, well, it's quite a depressing scene sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, um, absolutely. The sort of relentless versions of calling out and then the accusations of people for calling out, as you know, when they're maybe not. And it's mm. just, it, it's yeah, it's kind of depressing. Mm. I, I think whenever you get involved with activism outside your comfort zone, even if it's just maybe attending a march and, you know, in support of, of, of some group or set of demands or a meeting or just going to a talk online or whatever, you often find that the groups don't at all live up to the stereotypes that circulate yeah. a- around them and that people are fighting, you know, really fighting important struggles using whatever tools they have, you know, to hand, whatever they have as their resources. You know, the class activists are generally really concerned about childcare and far-right racist mobilising in their communities. Mm. You know, they don't live up to the stereotype sometimes peddled and certain versions of the left, left, you know, class activists are entirely reductive and only concerned with workers. Any class activists I've interlinked with over the years are really fighting, you know, for childcare and community resources and stuff that affect women and really concerned with, you know, racist activity in their communities and so on. And similarly, you know, women or people fighting for reproductive justice 
in my experience, are just as likely to be taking on class-based exclusions and privileges as anything that could be narrowly construed as women's rights. Mm -hmm. So I think a genuine openness to other movements with other motivations and ideas could help us move away from these tired, slanging matches and unsolidaristic ways of engaging. And um, I also like what Rodiger says here in his efforts to overcome these, these kinds of divisions, you know, on the left where people are fighting different inequality battles, but somehow also come to oppose each other. Mm. And he says, you know, namely, he says that tone matters. And he urges, uh, uh, this is a quote, a respect for the ways in which those from whom we differ are working to address difficult problems in hard times. Yeah. And I think that kind of respectful engagement mm. and kind of willingness to... It invites you know, a kind of a, humi yeah. a humility, I think. Do you know what I mean? A humility yeah. about our position, about our claims, about our yeah. knowledge base, about our preferred theories or, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then exactly. I suppose the, the final um, point of controversy, or maybe not controversy, <laughs> but this is, this is less controversial, maybe. This is more the uh, final concept that you that you kind of analyze in, in yeah. your in your paper in the in the European uh, Journal of Social Theory is the is the concept of intersection intersectionality, which which yeah. you, you referred to briefly there earlier, which has risen in popularity since the 1990s, partly as you have written because it has been perceived as a corrective to some of the stated problems of identity politics, and um, I'm sure listeners are, are familiar with it, but just just to kind of to say it that intersectionality refers to the ways in which aspects of a person's experiences or social locations such as gender, class, sexuality, etc., combine or intersect to create their identity in ways which advantages advantages or disadvantages them to a greater or lesser extent. So you seem to have questioned the analytical or, or political utility of the idea of intersectionality, though you emphasize the need for attention to intersecting inequalities or intersecting systems of oppression. So maybe tell us what's the distinction, to, distinction here and what are your views on intersectionality as a mobilizing term? Yeah, so I, I think the simplest way of putting this is that I don't have any issue at all with the concept of intersectionality and uh, I think it's a very welcome um, addition to sort of kind of leftist analytical progressive analytical tools but I do have some misgivings where it is combined only with the concept of identity mm. so that what's what people are actually talking about is intersectional identities rather than intersecting forms of inequality or oppression um, and it's not that I think the concept of intersectional identity is a problem either. Sometimes it is very useful. And um, and not only for, you know, for the reasons you outline and more, but I, I think its power is limited if we just stay, stay fixated on intersecting identities, as I think it can ultimately exaggerate the, the basic essentialist logic of identity. You know, for example, as you know, as claims of reductionism are to a single voice are met with a search for ever finer identity categories, which yeah, are imagined yeah. to more properly capture the experience of a given constituency. And, um, you know, I think this perhaps also intensifies rather than reduces the pressures associated with what goes under the label of call-out culture, precisely because it is the sin of speaking for or making harmful assumptions about others that's at issue here. So, in, so since every identity position leaves out some others, no matter how intersectional, we may reach a logical conclusion where it becomes impossible to speak from any general position at all. You can only ever, you know, speak for yourself. So while this may be philosophically or ethically sound it doesn't provide much of a basis for political action and change mm. so for this reason on the whole i think it's more helpful to consider the intersection 
not of identity categories, although it, I mean it's part of it, but I don't think the focus should start and finish there, but should also um, in, in include a focus on complex inequalities and their intersection um, and the intersection of different social structures and forms mm. of oppression. Mm. And I think this is what m- may help build alliances and promote solidaristic political action mm. because people might recognise that actually they're just... While their identities may be different, they may nonetheless be mm. located um, at different intersections of of of, of um, different forms of oppression, and they might find you know points of solidarity there mm. rather than mm. you know p- mm. points of difference and distinction. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. So absolutely. I think, yeah, and I think you'll remember this as as well, Neve, that you know, in the very successful mobilisation for abortion rights in Ireland, there was a, a grassroots focus on multiple and often intersecting oppressions. I, I thought it was, you know, rather than, you know, you know, observing and in, in part participating in what's going on and then reading some of the analyses um, afterwards of the grassroots mobilisations, um, the focus very much seemed to be on intersecting oppressions rather mm. than intersecting identities, where intersectional identities came up was in sort of you know finding spokespeople for the media so that it would be representative um and i think that's that was part of the success of that of that Mm. movement and and you know probably vital to its legitimacy as well Mm. Yeah. yeah yeah um thank you so much marie i mean you've demonstrated just what a kind of a fruitful uh endeavor a keyword analysis of identity is um so um I know that you're currently in the throes of finishing up a book that uses uh, the cultural materialist perspective to analyse another very naughty concept, namely that of elites. Now, I know you're still working that through, um, but um, from what I understand, you're trying to grapple with the fact that, confusingly, anti-elite discourse is now a feature of both left and right um, politics deployed on the one hand by the likes of the Daily Mail and Donald Trump and on the other by those on the left, including Bernie Saunders and Jeremy Corbyn. So could you just tell us maybe just to finish up, Marie, just a tiny little bit about this research project, how you're yeah. approaching it and, and what you hope to kind of untangle with it? Yeah, so I have to just take my head out of all the identity yeah, stuff. No, no, that was a very, it, it was an extremely yeah. quick transition there. But, no, no, um, it's, it's good. But it's, it's the, good. The, 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 it's obviously, the, the, it's where you're, I know that is absolutely where your head is at the moment. And I obviously yep. that the common thread is 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 the keyword and the it is. analysis and the culturalist materialist approach. Yeah. yeah, absolutely it is. And um, again, I was sort of puzzled by, you know, the, the, the problem that I faced wasn't, you know, it was never immediately apparent to me that it would be resolved by a keywords approach or a cultural yeah. materialist approach. And it was, as you say, how come, you know, radically different political actors on left and right are talking about elites and claiming to be anti-elitist? You know, what's going on here? Mm. And when you read the literature, this is typically explained by reference to populism. So political scientists will say, oh, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing puzzling here. You know, Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn are both populists. But I think there's a lot more going mm. on here. And I think that these anti-elitist discourses deserve very careful consideration on their own terms. And that's what the book is is doing. And this is partly because of what I show to be the ideological force of the word elite and its capacity to signify uh, undeserved privilege, which is precisely what makes it useful to both left and right. Mm. But mm. It, it also has to do with the political traditions in which different anti-elitist discourses are embedded 
and their orientation to privilege. So we hear a lot about privilege in the identity politics debates. It turns out now that the notion of privilege is central to discourses around elites too. Mm -hmm. So the new book does conduct a keyword analysis of elites. It's a much smaller part of the book, actually, because I go on to, you know, um, look much more at kind of competing political traditions. But also true to the keyword method, it also situates the changing meanings and uses of the word within a material history of these competing and contrasting anti-elite positions on left and right, stretching back over kind of 120 years to the um, American populists beginning at that point. So, yeah, so the overall ambition is to secure a concept of elites that cannot easily be used or appropriated within reactionary discourses and politics, um, but that can form part of the conceptual and political arsenal of an emancipatory egalitarian politics on the left so that's the aim and I'll let you know when it's done (laughs) so uh, well I'm really really looking forward to to reading it and um, it's again it's as you said it's another point of just such radical confusion I think around the whole discourse of elites so I'm really looking forward to reading your unpacking of it and Great. You, you might even might even be tempted to come back to back, come back yeah. on the podcast to to, to, to talk about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Marie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. 